Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I'm not sure if you've heard of the term medical tourism, but essentially that means finding healthcare options outside of your home country, wherever that may be. And this is particularly true for Americans who you've heard story after story, whether you're from America or not, of people getting these insane bills and having their lives completely ruined in many ways, financially ruined, because there was an accident. Something happened. Maybe their insurance didn't cover it. There's a variety of scenarios that can happen. And I just think when it comes to the traveler and the travel mindset, we tend to have a a bigger, broader worldview, right? So why not take that view with healthcare? Why not take a look at some of the options for us so we know, hey, maybe there's other places around the world that we can get treated or our family members can get treated. And who is that right for? What are the pros and cons of traveling to get a major surgery or to get dental work so you can avoid paying a big bill in your home country? That's what today's show is all about. And I brought on the foremost expert on this topic. And (laughs) we went deep. We went deep. And this is an important show because you just never know when you're going to need to have knowledge like this in your back pocket. And of course, it involves travel too. So, hey, looking for an excuse to travel? I got to get that root canal. Maybe I'll go get it in Costa Rica or something. I don't know. But is that even a good idea? Where would you begin? I know it's probably sweeter recovering from a root canal on the beach somewhere than it would be on my couch at home. But these are things we're going to explore in today's show, so you're not going to want to miss it. I want to say thank you for being here, and I want to say welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for tuning in. And you are joining many thousands of listeners from around the world. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. I'm honored and humbled to bring a little travel into your ears today. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're discussing international healthcare. We're discussing medical tourism. This is a deep topic, and I'm so excited to bring you one of the world's foremost experts on this. He speaks at panels all over the world regarding this topic, and really they're 
the go-to resource for this topic. So it was wonderful to have this chat. And I always love to find workarounds to problems, to things that people might assume, oh, well, there's only one way to do this. And, and a good example of this is getting a big health care bill. If you're based in the States and you have some, have some major surgery or something going on, well, hey, maybe there's a smarter way to do this. Maybe I don't have to pay $50,000 to be taken care of. Maybe I can pay $5,000 and go to a place that I've wanted to visit and have more support and help. And it's just another one of those potential solutions, just like travel hacking or just like anything we do to get around sort of what's assumed by people. What's a way that it seems like you quote unquote should do things, but do you have to do them that way? And I love to explore these topics because it's good for people to know options especially when it comes to their health. I was really passionate about doing this show and I've been trying to get this particular expert on for a while and we got him. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get into it, a quick thank you to Pimsler for supporting today's show. If you haven't heard of it, it's P-I-M-S-L-E-U-R. You can Google that if you want. They've been around for decades and they have a language learning system that works. I'm a huge fan of it. If you go to zerototravel.com slash easy, That'll take you to a special offer page for Zero to Travel listeners where you can get a free seven-day trial to their monthly subscription service. So instead of having to pay hundreds of dollars for all of the language lessons, the audio lessons that you want to download, you can now check it out for free for seven days and then you can pay a low monthly fee and have access to all of those courses in whatever language you want to learn or stay on top of if you're already learning a language. It's awesome. If you like podcasts, you like consuming information through audio, you're going to love Pimsleur and you're also going to love the structure and how it gets you speaking right away. You can really hit an intermediate level pretty quickly if you just take those daily lessons. So swap out maybe a podcast and start learning language, enhance your travels, all of the benefits that come with language learning. There are so many, too many to list here. Check them out, zerototravel.com slash easy. We'll take you to that offer page. If you decide to pick up any of their courses or do that monthly subscription, you're also going to be supporting my show because I'm an affiliate partner with Pimsleur, proud to support them. And you'll also be supporting the show if you purchase any of their stuff. So thank you for that. And thanks to them for supporting today's show. Okay, let's get into it. And I'm going to share some shocking stats on the other side, something if you're interested in the healthcare topic that you should be following along with. We'll talk about that on the other side, but just enjoy this interview right now. And I'll see you there. Welcome to the Rotunda Hospital. We are a smoke-free hospital. Thank you for not smoking in the hospital and in this ambulance area. In the interest of hygiene and infection control, we would ask you to... My guest today has spent the last two decades of his life working in international healthcare, helping consumers gain access to global options for affordable quality care. He's the founder and CEO of Patients Beyond Borders, which he has described as the lonely planet of medical tourism. You can find out more at patientsbeyondborders.com. It is the most trusted source of consumer information about international medical and health travel. Joe Woodman, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. My intention behind bringing you on outside of you know, getting to know you and learn more about this important resource is helping people get the care they need at an affordable price and understand that there are options outside of 
their home country. And I think the big thing is getting comfortable with those options, right? Because I think that's one of the big hurdles. Um, what is medical tourism? If you just want to break it down, maybe somebody listening is hearing that term for the first time. Uh, it's a good question. Good one to start out with. And it's, a, again, like all things healthcare, not an easy answer. We define medical tourism as gaining access to uh, another country to receive quality, uh, affordable care. And that entails uh, either access to another country that you might be able to get access to health care that's not in your own country, uh, or in many cases, access to affordability of care. Uh, we do not count wellness tourism. We don't count, you know, just general health tourism, mostly elective treatments uh, involving a surgery of some kind or some kind of a diagnosed treatment. So um, cosmetic surgery, dentistry, uh, orthopedics, spine and joint, cancer, almost anything that you can think of now uh, as medical tourism and healthcare around the world has evolved. Um people travel to for for care. I know a lot of people listening can relate to the moment, especially if you're based in the States. I live in Norway now, Joe, so it's a it's a totally different ball game. But I remember I walked into my buddy's ironing board. This is just one example. And I, I split the middle of my toe and had to get a series of stitches. I don't remember how many. But the first thing I thought about, and I know people listening can relate, is, oh, no, how much is this going to cost? And then... You know what I mean? Like basing the decision of that you're making about your health and ke- keeping your body whole on the costs, which is an everyday reality. I can speak from the perspective of being a U.S. citizen because that's where I grew up, but uh, I'm sure you're more familiar with all the other <laughs> institutions and, and organizations around the world in terms of healthcare and how the countries run it. But I think everybody can, at least listening to this from the States, can relate to that moment. And it's a terrible feeling. So the goal of this is going to be really to kind of dive in a little bit deeper and understand how this all works. So people know that this is a solid option, of course, using your website as a resource. Before we get too deep into that, I, I did want to ask you a couple personal questions. I'm wondering how you got involved in healthcare yourself, how did you end up in this industry? Well, that's a that's a long story, and make a long story <laughs> even longer, as my attorney used to love to say. Uh, I'll try to make it short. I'm a, I'm not a doctor; I'm a publisher by trade. Uh, sold uh, our company in what 1995 to International Thompson, and had to start a website, and was had been interested for a long time in uh, wellness and preventive care. And uh, started one of the first wellness and preventive care sites on the internet. And we sold that in the year 2000. Uh, but that really got me into healthcare, looking at this $2.5 trillion, now $3.6 trillion healthcare bill that keeps mounting in the United States with no end in sight. Shortly after that, my father traveled. He announced that he was going to Puerto Vallarta to uh, get a whole mouthful of new teeth. I went, Dad, now what are you doing? And he said, why don't you join me? And I said, you know what? I can. I will. And uh, I did. And he did. He got a whole mouth. He got he got uh, something like, he was quoted $31,000 in the United States. And he got it done for 14000 in Mexico. His, <laughs> his wife went across the street and spent most of it on <laughs> cosmetic surgery. <laughs> but that's another, that's a whole other story. Uh, but his vetting process, he's a little bit geeky. I guess he, uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, and he was quite a pioneer. I mean, after all, this was 2000 and 
four, I think. Uh, and most of the sites, the dental sites in Mexico were not in English. They weren't very well uh, documented. They certainly was, there was certainly no vetting or third party, like a Patients Beyond Borders. And he chose three of them. One of them was really terrible, just what most people would think of as a, as a clinic in, in a foreign country. It wasn't quite a mud hut, but it was pretty, pretty bad. Uh, second one was nice, but no English. Third one was an American board certified doctor and bingo. I mean, I saw my first panoramic x-ray there. I'd never seen one in the United States, right? In-house. And he also had a CT scanner and a couple of other instruments that I didn't even know what they were until later. And he got the work done. Uh, I came back and people were following me out the door, um, wondering how they could get my dad's email address because everybody's one degree away from somebody that uh, needed some kind of care. And I saw a book in there and hired a uh, contracted a couple of travel writers, uh, went to India to check out a couple of hospitals, realized it wasn't a travel book. And, uh, the writers graciously after about six months of being completely tormented, um, trying to write a health book when they were travel writers actually just tore up the contract, gave it back. And I ended up having so much, so many notes. Um, I was encouraged to just write the book myself, which I did. And so it was released in Singapore at a medical travel conference, first one ever, in 2007, February 2007. Um, the Economist picked it up immediately, um, wrote a little story about medical tourism that kind of gave birth to the contemporary name. And uh, we ended up with something like 15 or 16 country-specific and region-specific books. And that's hence the term lonely tra uh, planet of medical travel. Uh, and, uh, a, a website grew from that and we get, um, you know, we get a modest number of visits every month from people who are interested in, um, a little bit more of a academic and less of a, of a commercial approach to medical tourism, if you will. Hmm. So you actually created that term medical tourism? No, actually the term grew out of India, uh, when the, uh, incredible India people and the tourism board there. Was they were trying to get their arms around the phenomenon of Brits coming to India for care. Uh, and what was happening was uh, the NHS was triaging specialty care like orthopedic and cardiac. They just were all clogged up. Um, you know, the system was going broke. And so they would have long, long wait times. Uh, and I had one Brit tell me I would have died on before I got to the operating table. I went to India for my care. And he did. He went to Wolkhart Heart Hospital and got a cardiac, he got a bypass surgery there and did well. So, but it didn't really catch. We were the ones that kind of had a catch. Uh, and, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for because then medical tourism became uh, a term that denoted go get a procedure and have a, ho have a happy holiday. And we've been fighting that ever since. Uh, because we don't believe that tourism should be uh, a part of most surgeries, especially anything re involving wound management or anything that has any kind of a recovery period. You should look at it more like a business trip uh, and not a leisure trip. You come in, you get your work done, uh, you go home, clear out your 400 emails in your inbox, and if you've got change left over from the trip, then maybe spend it um, – some other time after you've fully recovered. But we, we really don't like the term medical tourism, even though that's what's kind of clicked. Right. The book, you mentioned Patients Beyond Borders, Everybody's Guide to Affordable World-Class Medical Travel. I think that's in its second edition. Is that correct? 
we're we're actually in a third edition now. Okay, and a fourth great. edition is due out in mid mid two thousand and nineteen. But we did well, the first one, yes, uh, denoted medical tourism. Then we changed it to medical travel, and we don't really even refer to tourism throughout the book. We, we'd like to call it international healthcare travel or medical travel, uh, anything but tourism, um, because it just it's it just. And frankly, there is a whole bevy of light procedures, we call them. And I, we even kind of invented the term, the incidental medical traveler. I mean, you've got the accidental medical traveler who's traveling and has a, ends up in the ER because they, you know, food poisoning or some kind of an accident or a wound or something. Um, and, and then there's the incidental traveler uh, that incidentally uh, tacks on a light uh, procedure like maybe it's a, a an MRI scan or a hearing test or uh, they purchase a whole bunch of inexpensive pharmaceuticals from a reputable pharmacy abroad um, and to me that fits in with the concept of tourism if they're not if there's you know no recovery something that can be in and out like a, a health a health checkup or a dental screening or a clean a teeth cleaning. Uh, my son joined me in Bangkok, as a matter of fact, uh, a couple of three years ago. Mm, he got off the plane and he was jet lagged. And I said, Hey, um, want to go for a, a royal time massage? And he said, Well, you know, I, I, I heard you could, you know, get like cheap <laughs> dental care in Bangkok. And I said, Are you kidding? <laughs> you want to do that? <laughs> and he did. And he saved, uh, he was living in the Bay Area at the time. And he, for a teeth cleaning and two cavity fills and just couldn't believe it. it was like a $550, $700 quote. And he got all of this done in a very reputable, super modern clinic uh, in Bangkok for, I think it was $126. He was begging them to do something else. And they said, no, no, we, there's nothing else. Your teeth are fine. We can't do any more. So it was, it was, then we went and got a, got a nice massage. Uh, so. <laughs> a good way to follow it up. Yeah, I got my I got my teeth cleaned in uh in Vietnam and had a I think I paid 20 something dollars and it was it was an eye-opening thing. I'm sure for you going with your dad and seeing that firsthand opened your eyes as well because I think like you said you kind of made a passing comment with the the mud hut thing, but that is I believe a big misconception with a lot of people is, okay, if I'm getting looking at care outside of my home country, it's going to be you know, super rural and not advanced. Uh, is that one of the the biggest, if not the biggest misconception when it comes to well, care it's a, it's a really good question, and it really depends on where you, where you live. And certainly, without question, with Americans, that is the number one misconception because well, we tend to be a, a fairly xenophobic culture. I mean, something still, something under 50% of us um, are without passports, close to 50%, I think, even though now a passport is required for Mexico. Uh, and so uh, in other parts of the country where travel is a little more fluid, where uh, people across borders and see the rest of the world, quality isn't the number one concern. It's often access to good information on where they're going to get great care, especially complex care. Uh, for uh, a, a high acuity condition, but certainly in the United States uh, and to a lesser extent in some some European countries, uh, there there is great uh, uh, concern about quality, and there should be. It just shouldn't be under the aegis of um, presuming that there isn't quality care uh, in, in another country, 
and that has dramatically changed the access to the amount of quality care that the, any patient has now due to international accreditation and the growth of that phenomenon over the last 10 years. Can you go deeper on the accreditation? Because I know that's something you talk about quite a bit. In, uh, I know you're going all over the world speaking and on this topic. And that was one of the things that I learned through researching you <laughs> for this interview is the international accreditations and what that can mean and how that's spreading. And can you talk about what that is and the impact that that has on uh, medical travel? Every country has its own oversight, usually run by the Ministry of Health in a given country. Uh, in the United States, uh, there's a reason why it's considered to be number one or until quite recently for healthcare. Uh, and part of it is because a tremendous amount of research is done, but a lot of it has to do with the regulatory infrastructure that um, goes out of its way um, in terms of patient safety uh, to protect patients against bad clinical outcomes, to regulate processes. Uh, and the top accreditation agency is called the Joint Commission, and they accredit almost every hospital and clinic in the United States. You can't even qualify for insurance uh, or Medicare or Medicaid patients if you are not JC accredited. Some 12, 14 years ago, uh, they saw the handwriting on the wall, saw that American hospitals were beginning to export themselves overseas and brand themselves, and they established an international arm called the Joint Commission International. And just to put it in perspective, when we were doing the research on the book in 2006, there were 27 JCI accredited clinics around the world, and now there are over a 1,000. And uh, the growth has been tremendous, uh, which is, and so they credit something like 1,300 um, various processes to make sure that a hospital is offering Western-style care, good, solid allopathic care. So they build themselves as a gold standard. I'm not quite sure I would go that far, um, but they are definitely uh, a floor where you know when you go to a JCI-accredited hospital, you're getting a standard of care uh, that's you know much higher than your average bear, particularly in an emerging country. And one uh, horrible example is a, a hospital that catered to high-end patients and international patients in Calcutta. Uh, so about five years ago, burned to the ground and, the, and killed something like, I don't know, 71, 95 people. And the cause of it was kerosene that was being stored in the basement. Uh, and it caught fire, and most of the patients died due to smoke inhalation. It's a dramatic example, but it's an example of something that would never happen in the case credit hospital. And this was not, uh, this hospital was not accredited. There wasn't much oversight. And so it's a fact that many of the medical travel destinations also don't have great oversight. They're emerging countries, like you mentioned, Vietnam. Uh, they don't have the kind of oversight that you see in the United States or in Canada or in the UK or Germany or France or Norway. Uh, the regulatory oversight isn't there. So a lot of that is self-regulated. And so hospitals that have applied for JCI pay a pretty penny uh, to get that uh, award. And it's really worthwhile to vet hospitals in terms of accreditation. There are other accreditations out there, accreditation agencies out there, uh, like uh, 
the American Accreditation Association, it's A-A-A-C-H-A, Accreditation Association, anyway, hospitals and clinics is the, is the, is the HC part. Um, and uh, there are a couple of others that accredit internationally. There's uh, several out of Canada and a couple out of uh, Australia that do international accreditation. But JCI is the biggest and the one that really has uh, allowed um, one-to-one comparisons uh, for care. So if you're comparing, you know, um, an orthopedic uh, surgery that you might um, want to undergo in um, Thailand to, let's say, well, um, Singapore down the road or Turkey, uh, JCI is a good benchmark. Are the JCI hospitals and clinics the ones you generally recommend overall, or do you have a mixed bag? It's a good question. It is a mixed bag. We generally recommend them because they're the ones that do the heavy lifting. Uh, They're the ones that can visit the hospitals um, and do spot checks. uh, And uh, a hospital has to be reaccredited once every three years. Uh, You know, we, we don't have the resources to... You know, to, to to do that, that's a huge operation. They're charging hospitals upwards of a hundred thousand dollars for each accreditation period, and so they, you know, they uh, they've got the resources to be able to to do that. That said, um, I have visited hospitals uh, and I've built a network of ministries of health and other agencies where if we hear of a really good hospital, I can reach out and say, what do you think about this? And they say, oh, yes, that's top quality, great outcomes, et cetera. So we've developed trust. A lot of it's word of mouth, but we default to JCI or some kind of international accreditation. The other hospitals that you see on our site are hospitals that I've personally visited, hospitals or clinics, um, and I've kind of given them the, the thumbs up. Uh, based on uh, additional vetting that we that we've done when we see a really excellent um, specialty clinic, like an IVF clinic, there's one in Barbados, which also happens to be JCI accredited. Um, and of course, I've been to my share of clinics and hospitals, getting getting care myself uh, right. around the world. Yeah, what's been your personal experience with it on, on the I guess the the good end and the maybe not so good end, or has there not been a not so good end? <laughs> No, there actually was. There actually was. And I got, I didn't take my own advice. And it happened in Costa Rica where I needed to get uh, an implant. Um, it was the second phase of an implant. So I'd gotten the first phase done. It was a root canal that, that got infected. It was actually during the research on our book. Uh, and I contacted, you know, uh, one of our, one of our editorial people and said, Hey, what you got? And I settled on Costa Rica. I went to a very good dentist who popped the abutment in and the temporary crown. And when I went back, I think he was on vacation. Something was, there was something going on and I needed to shop for somebody else. And I kind of price shopped like an idiot. Um, went to this guy who advertised heavily and you really want to, uh, patients want to really be leery of, of the people that advertise the most because they're the ones that have to subsidize all that advertising and by cutting corners often. The odd thing is that he put a non-standard post in and then attached the crown to that, as I recall. And oddly enough, I was in Medellin at a medical travel conference. I was keynoting and the, the thing broke. My tooth literally broke off and fell into my hand. And I 
contact of the cluster. I was, I was just in a, in a, in a real state. It was incredibly uncomfortable, but it wasn't painful. Not yet. They referred me to a great dentist. that was actually part of their healthcare cluster in Medellin. And I went there, uh, and it was, it was a mess. He was, a uh, one of the top dentists in the city, um, a real research wonk. He actually contacted my dentist and learned that he had put a non-standard uh, abutment in, um, uh, or post, I should say. And they had to yank the entire tooth. It was the most painful thing I've ever experienced. Uh, and I've had kidney stones. So it was really like like akin to torture. Well, it got me all set up, uh, got it back into place, and I've never had a problem since. He was just top-notch. And so, uh, yeah, I've had good experiences. I've had bad experiences. Uh, my favorite hospital is uh, Bomograd International in Bangkok. And they, uh, they have something like 300 American board-certified doctors working for them. Um, they've got, they offer just great specialty care uh, in almost every department that you can think of. They're the largest international hospital in the world. I think they were featured on 60 Minutes. Um, about seven or eight years ago, they gave him a full hour. Um, and I've had mm, light diagnosis there. Unfortunately, I'm, unfortunately I'm in good health. So I haven't had a lot of heavy stuff that I need to do, but I had a shoulder that went out on me and the Duke finally got around to quoting $3,200 for an MRI. And I said, no, thanks. I've got a high deductible plan. And I stayed in pain and uh, ended up in, uh, Bangkok and the price was $426. And if you go at two in the morning, it's $210. Same equipment, um, same readings out on the, uh, out on the DVD that they furnish you three hours later. And, uh, I met with the surgeon the next day and he basically said, you don't need surgery. You need, um, physical therapy. He wrote me a prescription in Thai and in English and was more than happy to give it to the Duke people. And, those therapy and um, stopped doing what I was doing to cause the shoulder pain and everything was great, but it was really refreshing to talk to a surgeon that wasn't standing there with a knife in his hand. Right. Ready to operate. That one hits home for me because I dislocated my shoulder last year, but it happened in Norway and I've dislocated my shoulder in America, which is a vastly different experience cost wise as, as you know, yeah. mm-hmm. These are great personal examples, too, that I think paint the picture. And you mentioned some of the common procedures. It sounds like dental is really popular. Uh, you mentioned your shoulder. Certainly, if there's an emergency situation, you're not going to probably have time to plan a trip to to Thailand. But to paint the picture a little further, can you share maybe what one or two of the most common procedures are and just give us some comparable costs so people can understand, you know, based off of a couple examples, wh- what exactly cost savings they're looking at if they consider this option? Yeah. And it, uh, the answer is it, it, it depends. Um, it depends where you go. Um, but I'll try to, I'll try to give you a broad stroke, broad stroke. The, is your audience mostly the American? Um, uh, yeah, mostly, but I think, you know, a, a lot of my audience is yeah in America, but also people are traveling around, you know, people are living nomadically. I and mean, that's a big thing now is to not have a home to just uh, gotcha. be traveling gotcha. around okay. and not living anywhere. In which case, if you're willing to just be anywhere, you can certainly jump on a flight to anywhere so we can get into destinations and stuff too. If you want to highlight a few of your favorites, but, um, well, you know, it's, it, it is, it, it's even more important, uh, for people who are traveling around to, to do that extra vetting because, 
you know, sometimes you really don't have the luxury. Something just comes up um, and it's not quite an emergency procedure, but then it's something where, you, you know, you need to address fairly quickly. Um, a really dear friend of mine had a son who was involved in a motorcycle accident in South India, south of Bangalore, and he ended up in the wrong hospital. Uh, and it was uh, almost, it was a potentially disastrous consequence with a misdiagnosis on antibiotics. Um, and so we ended up getting him into the right hospital, but he was an example of a traveler. Uh, my, my niece was in Bogota, sent me a photograph of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, her cat that she had injured falling, up, falling off of something. And it was a nasty cut, and they had misdiagnosed that again. And I got her into a JCI-accredited hospital in Bogota. She was definitely in the wrong clinic, and they had misdiagnosed a staph infection. It was actually strep E, which was a flesh-eating virus. She was actually in a lot of danger. So uh, it's really important if you're on the road or semi on the road, like you're maybe living somewhere for six months or whatever, um, to know that if you're in, 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 in Laos, that maybe Laos is not the best place, especially if you need some real diagnostics, because a misdiagnosis can, can, can kill you just as, just as surely as a poor treatment. You've got to get the diagnosis right. So a lot of people will, will, uh, in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam will go to Thailand or Singapore or Malaysia their care with the quality of healthcare is much better. But back to your question uh, on the uh, the procedures, um, it used to be that con- certain countries were really great with certain types of specialties, but with so many general hospitals now springing up all over the place, it's probably important that uh, a traveler just know what the countries are that are better for care. And we outline that in Patients Beyond Borders and uh, on our site. We've identified some, uh, I don't know, 22 countries that are excellent for medical tourism because they have great healthcare infrastructure. And in those countries, you can go for almost any procedure. Um, Americans tend to travel uh, most heavily for dental and cosmetic surgery. That's 65% of all uh, medical travel. And I would expect that that would be true with, um, travelers, as, with travelers as well. Um, you know, there are different sectors like Chinese, um, affluent Chinese patients and affluent patients from Africa tend to travel to the United States and Germany and the UK for complex care that they can't otherwise get in their countries. And they'll be willing to pay hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars for it. But that's not your average traveler. So your average traveler, I think, is going to be traveling for dental, maybe perhaps light cosmetic surgery, health screenings, um, teeth cleanings, um, maybe an MRI scan like I got and they can save you a whole lot of money. Um, you know, so if you're in Asia, you know, the countries that I mentioned are good, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand. Uh, if you're in Europe, where uh, elective treatments can be really expensive, um, then Eastern Europe, Poland, Czech, uh, Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, all have good, solid oversight on their health care. Um, Turkey is excellent. And they're between, you know, the Middle East or centrally located in the Middle East to Central and Western Europe and to South and Southeast Asia. So they, um, they, that can be a good place for value. If people are really looking to save a buck, but you have to do additional vetting and be willing to put up with some of the cultural nuance, if you will. Uh, India is, is, has got really, really great care, but you've got to go to the right, got to go to the right facility because their oversight uh, is province by province, state by state. 
um, and it varies, uh, much like in the United States. Um, and so you've got to make sure that you're going to the right hospital once you've chosen that country as a destination for for value. You can get something like 80 to 90% off of, a, let's say, an orthopedic, a knee surgery or a hip surgery, um, 60 or 70% off of dental care in Mumbai or Delhi. Um, others like Mexico, um, destinations like Mexico, Malaysia, um, South Korea, count on 40 to 70% savings over what you might expect to pay in, in the UK or the United States for elective care. So you'd be talking thousands or tens of thousands of dollars or potentially even more. Is the first move when you're overseas, you mentioned you know, if you're living somewhere for six months or you're just traveling around, and I know you guys have the hospital finder feature on patientsbeyondborders.com. Say you're based somewhere for five or six months, is it to just go to your website and kind of get familiar with the accredited hospitals around you? Is that sort of the... The smart yeah, program. certainly. That's one. That's one. That's one resource, um, and um, it, it really depends on your on your on your procedure. So uh, JCI generally mostly accredits multidisciplinary hospitals, and if you go to the Joint Commission International homepage, they have a hospital finder themselves, and you can choose by specialty, and then it'll give you a listing of the hospitals by country or by specialty around the world. And that's just a great tool uh, for people that are doing more like health screenings or uh, dentistry or light cosmetic surgery or uh, a number of other uh, procedures. Uh, it's a little more hit and miss. I mean, we, we, we have a selective number of hospitals and clinics. Um, there are sites that um, people sometimes discover and sometimes don't. And they're, uh, better or worse, um, depending on the kind of reputation that they built for themselves. But there's not much oversight on these sites. So, you know, Hotels.com and TripAdvisor and Expedia are generally trusted sources. Uh, we're not quite there yet with medical travel and medical tourism. Uh, I work with a group called, uh, they've got two sites. One is called Medical Departures, uh, and the other is called Dental Departures. And uh, it's a former Expedia executive who founded both of the uh, both of the organizations. Uh, he set up his entire family in Mexico. Personally visited 200 Mexican clinics uh, and listed them. Uh, then, when all of the drug cartel stuff hit, he moved to Thailand to act as a hedge against <laughs> disaster for his business, and did the same thing in Thailand. Moved the family around Bangkok, Chiang Mai. Mm, um, all those, all the, all the Thai destinations, forget, and uh, built a, a good, solid register of vetted clinics. And he, he's got something like a hundred thousand bookings now to his name, uh, and over sixty thousand verified patient reviews. So, to me, that's a trusted source uh, for uh, dental and for some. Uh, medical. They haven't branched out to all of the various specialties and treatments are moving a little slower on that. Um, but uh, it's a little more hit and miss. So that's why we, that's why we have people rely on JCI accredited hospitals and, and, and clinics. If they have a, uh, an emergency situation, a semi-emergency situation, or, you know, a non-emergent situation um, that might require uh, some additional care if something goes south with anesthesia or whatever. We don't tend to like the independent clinics. 
uh, if there's any kind of surgery involved. Got it. Okay. So, and those websites were dentaldeparturescom and medicaldeparturescom. Uh, it was interesting to hear your experience with the shoulder uh, because it sounded like you used a hybrid solution, right? You you were you're like, okay, well, this MRI is ridiculous, so I'm going to fly over here do the MRI, but then I'm going to bring the MRI back and still get my physical therapy back in my home country where I'm based, where I'm going to be spending more time. So that is another way to do it, I guess, right? I'm still trying to understand what happens when you have a more serious type of thing. Like say somebody goes for a knee replacement or you know, there's all the follow-up stuff after. And I know this is all in your book, but if you could just give us an, an overview on, on kind of how that works, right? How does the recovery period work? Usually the doctor wants to see you again multiple times. Is it oh, I'm going to have to block out. I know it depends on the procedure, but are most people staying in these countries and following up with the doctor there? Or are they going back home? How does that all work? No, mo- most people, especially, I mean, you know, medical travelers tend to be an older crowd, but they also tend to be a working crowd. Um, you know, these are not, we're not addressing the luxury cosmetic patient that's heading to Brazil to go get um, go get some, you know, high-end, no. Yeah, no, we're talking right about, about all the money <laughs> getting are, care you need. We're talking about people literally that are one condition away from financial ruin uh, and, and, and really need to save serious money on an elective procedure. In terms of travelers, a lot of your folks are perhaps younger and on a budget. Um, they may not be desperate, but it would be really helpful to save hundreds or thousands of dollars um, once you know where to once you know where to go. Um and so um, that's you know that's a that's a really important part of it. But you've hit on a really sensitive piece in the medical travel experience, which is what do you do after you get back home? Um, most people think in terms of complications, and it's if you go to a reputable hospital or clinic, complications aren't as much of an issue as people think think it is because. If you're going for some kind of a surgery, often your hospital will require you to stay uh, either in a hospital or in a nearby uh, recovery venue, like a, a hotel or whatever, during a, a certain period where the freak, where the, the, the risk of complication uh, is the highest. Maybe it's eight days, maybe it's two weeks uh, for some kind of a, of a surgery. And once that risk is passed, it's, there's very low chance that you're going to have a problem when you get back home. However, you mentioned recovery, and that's exactly right. Most people are working for a living. They got to get back to work. They got to get back to their families. They don't want to stay in country. Plus, it's expensive anyway. So, yes, the large majority of people head back home to recover. So, the key issue is no matter where you are, make sure that you bring back all of your medical records, all of your scans, your consultations, your x rays, any blood work uh, results. Um, so that your doc, when you get back to your whatever country you're residing in at the time, can have a roadmap for you know any anything that develops afterwards, any secondary visits you need to take, and that includes uh, prescriptions that are, are written for for physical uh, re- rehabilitation. Um, so in my case, uh, I had a I had a prescription written for rehab uh, that I took to Duke. I ended up only going I think one session. Uh, and realized that I could probably get most of the rehab on YouTube and save the money, which I did, and um, worked out just fine. I, I've got 90% mobility in my shoulder now, um, just uh, you know, fo- just, just knowing that I needed to pay attention 
stop doing what I was doing and, and, and follow through on the, on the, on the rehab. So that's a really important piece of it. But yes, I mean, and it applies even to, I had one patient uh, come up to me after I gave him a lecture and told me that his wife had was terminal with cancer, always wanted to visit uh, Israel. And he goes, why not? They got great clinics in Israel. She's going to get her chemo there. And he took off. He was very happy. So in other words, she got the diagnosis in the United States, got some of the chemo in the U.S., but they decided to travel because she'd always wanted to go before she died. Her days were numbered and she got her chemo there. So, you know, you can you can mix and match and look at the real expensive part, which is the procedure and the doctor's fees and the hospital's fees that you get hit with in the United States and in other countries and go to a country for that and then pay out of pocket uh, for the rehab or do it yourself or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the main hit is that initial treatment. So, so often people will get diagnosed in the home country, uh, and get their treatment elsewhere and then come back for the recovery. Got it. And malpractice, I know is something you've discussed of what if, what can you do if something goes wrong and you, it went wrong in a, in a country that you're not from? Most countries have recourse, um, perhaps not in terms of malpractice, but you are able to sue. Uh, it's an intricate process. Uh, many countries put a, um, uh, uh, a, a ceiling on the price of a human life. Um, in Singapore, for example, it's $500,000 last time I checked. Might be, it might have already said now that their economy has gone crazy. Um, but you can't get a you know three hundred million dollar settlement like you can in the United States. Um, I I generally advise people who are overly concerned about malpractice. Uh, if if they're that concerned about malpractice, I tell them that they may not be a good candidate for medical travel in the first place. Because the truth is, if you go to the right hospital and clinic, uh, your chances of having a complication are. Um, as remote as having a complication in the United States if you go to a quality hospital. And your chances of recovering a malpractice suit are worse, but in the United States, it's not easy either. Just try filing for malpractice in the U.S. and see where that gets you. Um, you know, so it's, 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 not, it's not a fait accompli uh, in the United States or anywhere else just because it's got um, malpractice coverage doesn't mean you're necessarily going to recover it, even if there's been a mistake made. Generally speaking, in some of these hospitals you're talking about that are more of the premier hospitals around the world, are you getting better care than most U.S. hospitals or, or more of like you're saying, hey, I'm getting this standard, same standard of care? It, it, one of the things that U.S. hospitals are beginning to discover, along with other hospitals that have, you know, in industrialized nations, um, the, the, you know, it, it's a complicated issue, but they're, they're beginning to discover that, you know, the clinical experience is one thing. And the patient experience is another. And so often the patient experience has to do with, the, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfied patients where the clinical experience turned out okay, but the patient experience, the patient reports they had a really bad time. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the doctors are under so much pressure um, to see so many patients because of all the negotiated rates and insurers uh, and, and, and the way health plans are constructed, whether it's government-run universal health plan. There's always some triage, and insurance companies are just always putting pressure on to get patients moving through the hospital or clinic. So doctors just don't have time for you. And in, in a lot of these uh, veteran 
uh, industrialized nations where they do have that time for you. So I can only speak anecdotally and by extension from the experiences that other patients have had, have had, but they generally report eye-popping experiences and they talk about the fact that their doctors and their surgeons spent so much time with them. Surgeon actually picked up the phone and, you know, um, answered uh, two days after a surgery and answered a question. It's a completely different, different culture. Uh, and one that I think also lends to a better diagnosis and a faster recovery because it's just not as, as stress-filled. Um, so the sophisticated medical traveler, and they're not they're a handful, but they're the sophisticated medical traveler is actually traveling to another country not only to get more affordable care, but to get um, an improved patient experience, better clinical care, more time with the doctor, uh, more um, uh, focus on their recovery and, and their and their well-being. There's just no time for that left in the in the United States. But again, you've got to go to the right hospital and clinic. Patients should not price shop. If price is your bottom line, you have a much higher chance of getting into uh, in, 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 into trouble and not getting that kind of not getting that kind of care. So it's better to pay a, a comparative premium uh, to get the, the best care uh, and still save you know a good solid amount of money over the care you might have received at home. There are so many intricacies to it and so many interesting questions you brought up. I wouldn't even know where to go because it's a deep topic. But just, just the cultural question, right? You're doing this in a different culture and what does that mean? And, and how, do, how do doctors in these different cultures... How are they taught to treat their patients? And the term bedside manner, what does that mean in other countries? And how much does that contribute to your recovery, right? And you can say, it's hard to know, right? There's a certain feeling when you feel like you're being cared for and the people actually care and they're following up. I'm experiencing it with my son right now. He's born with a club foot and we're going this through the, this whole process in Norway. The people that are working with him, they just care and they have time like you said i feel like they spend an hour with them the other week at an appointment like it matters oh not only do, not only does it matter but it really affects the outcome uh, a really great example is uh cancer clinics you know uh without going into the uh you know the, the all the all the details you know cancer research and and treatment in the united states grew out of research and research you know was mostly on lab rats and so a lot of the doctors and specialists in cancer in the early days pretty much treated their patients like lab rats, isolated them uh, in rooms, didn't allow them access to other patients. And there was a group called Cancer Treatment Centers of America that not only put patients together and, you know, had all these public uh, meeting places and cafeterias and lobbies where cancer patients would be hanging out with, you know, hats to cover their baldness and bandages and et cetera, et cetera, and IV drips and chemo drips. Um, they also introduced all kinds of palliative care uh, from acupuncture to music therapy. And the outcomes were undeniable. Uh, and now MD Anderson, Sloan, Kettering, and all everybody else in between is doing exactly the same thing. They're not, they're not saying that music therapy cures cancer, but it, it affects the outcome. It reduces the stress. And the more they discover that stress is a contributor to cancer, the more they discover they need to reduce the stress in an already stressful environment. So yes, the patient experience and the, whether it's good theater or whether the doctor really cares, that element is really important as you discovered with your, your son. 
which, um, you know, is one of the reasons why uh, pediatric hospitals tend to, you know, at least, um, you know, pretend to care. But when there's actually that element of real caring, which people can feel, it makes it all the, all the better. And we tend to see that there's just a lot more time, at least now, until Western medicine hopefully doesn't, but I expect will uh, infect, um, you know, a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, at least now, in this window, which I expect to last another 10, 15 years, um, caring, that, that piece of it is really important. And, you know, the statistic in the United States is your average GP spends you spends something like 12 minutes with a patient, if that. And the average um, specialist, my father-in-law didn't even meet his surgeon until after his surgery. That's just not done in other parts of the world. And that's where I want to go for my care. Yeah, I want to know who's cutting me open. I want to see your face. <laughs> I want to at least look into your eyes. And uh, I think people know intuitively, you use the term good theater or not. I think we all know when it's good theater and, and when it is in terms of medical care and, and people actually caring. And we understand, you know, sometimes people get a pass because they're having a busy day or whatever, like anybody else. But it's the overall process, I think. And you said before, too, that, you know, some people are one sort of bad injury or whatever away from financial ruin. In many ways, for most of America, at least, I feel like that's the case for everybody, right? Because even when you have the the lower deductible plans and you think you have good health care, and then all of a sudden, the healthcare companies fighting back on the things they'll pay for and won't pay for. And... I don't know. That's maybe a whole other conversation for another time. I mean, there's, many, I'm sure, many reasons why you started this site. I did want to ask you about the the tourism part because I know you were, you said you've been fighting against this term. You know, I've thought about this. If I needed serious dental care, I mean, this is something I would seriously consider, even being in Norway right now because dental care is included, isn't included. And if it was uh, the kind of thing it's where not I wasn't included, in a, correct. Is not included. Yeah, it's included for kids up to, uh, I believe, 18, uh, when they're 18 years old or 16. And then there's a percentage that's covered up until, I think they're like 21 or something like that. I I don't know exactly, but... And then you're you're on your own, yeah. Yeah, but like for me, as a traveler, I can't help but think about, oh, well, there's this travel element too. If it's it's a sort of a non-emergency thing and I'm not in a lot of pain and I'm going to have to get this procedure, well, shoot, I might as well save 10 grand and also get a chance to explore a new country, right? And <laughs> I mean, that that has to be an element of it for some people, right? I mean, to oh, take... Oh, no, no doubt. Uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, what, what we caution against is surgeries that especially involve wound management and especially cosmetic surgery where someone gets a facelift and thinks they can go sit on a beach when exactly the opposite is true. Right, right. Um, got it. Surgeon is any surgeon worth their salt is going to say, stay out of the sun for up to six months until your wound heals because the sun hurts the, the, uh, hurts the healing. But you are absolutely right. Um, there are all kinds of procedures where you know, I wouldn't recommend having an implant. In fact, I did that. I made that mistake in, in, in Costa Rica. Got, and right after my, um, you know, the, I got this extraction, et cetera, et cetera. There was four days before I had to go back to the dentist. And I took a bus down to Dominical on the coast out of San Jose. I literally fell out of the bus in San Ysidro in acute pain. 
because uh, the roads were bumpy and I didn't realize there was going to be so much swelling. So my point is, is that um, not all procedures are like that. And even if they are, yeah, head to a great medical, head to a great destination like Chiang Mai or, you know, um, Hoi An uh, in Vietnam. They've got good clinics there. And instead of looking at it as tourism uh, and fun in the sun, look at it as a really great place to recover and um, hang out um, because most recovery doesn't mean that you're bedridden, but it doesn't mean you should be having a margarita holiday either. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. The bus example is a great um, one. You it, might, you might underestimate sort of, oh, I'm just going to take this little, you know, four day trip, but not realizing oh, well, the, the roads are this way and that's going to rattle my whole mouth around and that's not going to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And not to mention pain, pain meds that, uh, you know, kind of reduce your judgment. So you don't want to be hopping into a, you know, a car when you're on some serious pain medication. Um, so, you, you know, just use your head. Thailand is such a great destination because they've got so many ways, you know, just some really chill culture. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of, you know, inexpensive spas and spa-like surroundings where you can go and recover. You can get a cheapy Air Asia flight or Nok Airways or something like that. And for 40 bucks, you're, you know, you're down in Koh Samui or uh, somewhere else. And uh, again, you still need to be taking care of yourself, but, you know, you can get R&R anywhere. And, you know, noodle around. Uh, and I've done that, but you still got to take it easy. You don't want to be too hard driving with it. And uh, with certain in certain cases, you really have to stay out of the sun. When you started this site, you must have known that there was going to be a lot of travel involved. And it, was that one of the things that excited you about it? Like, how do you, are these just business trips for you? Or are you, do you enjoy travel? Is this something that you love to do in your life? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. I, I, I didn't realize, I didn't see what was coming. Um, and you know, when we, after we launched the book, uh, medical travel itself took off, we were a part of that, but you know, and we were just along for the ride as well. And all of these medical tourism conferences popped up around the world and I was invited to half of them. And, uh, it was a way for me to insist that a hospital tour would accompany the conference. And they did, they would set up these hospital tours and that was my way of vetting the top hospitals in a given city or region. Um, but it was, I will say it was exhausting. Um, the short answer is, yeah, I do love to travel and I actually like, um, I like business. I like this, the business part of travel because you're actually part of something rather than just being a, a bit of a voyeur, you know, and you know, travel is just it, the, the typical tourist destinations, as you well know, are so over-traveled and so overcrowded. And I swear, I mean, I've never been to the Taj Mahal, even though I'm taking off. I'm, I'm going to actually be very near Agra um, this weekend. I've got to attend a conference in, in uh, outside of Delhi. And I'm not going to go. I'd rather see it on YouTube, to tell you the truth, because there's just too many travelers in these, you know, tourist destinations. So I use Lonely Planet now for places not to go uh, and like to go off the beaten path. And so the medical travel piece of it, the business end of it, really doesn't allow me the time to do that, even though I've kind of got a rule for myself that generally I'll take three or four days off of off of the trip, um, everything else being equal, uh, to noodle around. It's not ideal because three or four days you can just barely scratch the surface, but it's better than a kick in the teeth, <laughs> uh, and I'll take it. 
Well, if you get a kick in the teeth, you'll at least know where to go get them fixed. Um. <laughs> you'll know where to go. You'll know. You'll know. You'll you'll, you'll be there. Right. Yeah. Right. What uh? What has been the most gratifying part about starting this whole company and all the work that you're doing now? Well, not to be not to be corny, but we deal day in and day out um, with patients who are just really in need. Um, you mentioned. Um, insurance. So many people are now on these in the United States are on these what they call skinny plans or a byproduct of Obamacare. Obamacare couldn't have seen it coming, but it was it was uh, employers' ways of working around ACA. And so uh, that's a whole other story. But th- there's a false sense of security in these low and zero premium plans. And until uh, you really enter into a condition you don't realize that you're underinsured. You might not be uninsured, but you're severely underinsured. Uh, and that applies to the Cadillac plans as well. My, uh, my, my son's mom, uh, has a Cadillac PPO and she had a hip surgery. Uh, and it's going to cost her $12,000 out of pocket, even with this Cadillac plan. So she waited until she got <laughs> Medicare, got it done, uh, for much lower cost. But to answer your question, question it's just uh patients just really don't know what they're getting into until it's too late and so one of the really satisfying things for us is to uh, be able to offer options that people might not have considered and the overwhelming majority of people will somehow stay and pay for their care because they just cannot imagine going overseas for, for care, particularly if they don't have a passport and they've never done much traveling. But for those few patients uh, where they come to the water and drink the Kool-Aid and it actually works for them with a great outcome, it gives me an enormous satisfaction, especially at this time you know, in my life where to me building community wealth is far more important than, than building personal wealth. And I'm willing to adjust my lifestyle for that. I know your work's helping a lot of people out there. And like like you said, just the options, knowing those options is so key. I can't begin to describe to you how much being in Norway and, and just knowing that if anything happens to me or my family, that that's just taken care of, how much stress in my daily life that has eliminated. And it's just really improved the quality of my daily life, not having that stress hanging over you. Not everybody has that option to move to another country like this where everything's covered and I'm just in that situation right now. It's just part of my life choices, I guess. And I married a Norwegian. I ended up here. But but you guys are giving other people options that are outside of their home countries. And I appreciate that. And you mentioned, I know some people might be a little nervous about that. I have during my research discovered, it seems like there are quite a lot of ways to do this. You can do this independently or there are package tours and things like that right right now, aren't there, where people can sort of get everything taken care of for them. Is that a growing thing? And I just wanted to get, a, before I let you go, I just want to get a little advice on that. No, it's growing for light uh, medical care. I, I wouldn't recommend it for the heavy stuff um, because it's so nuanced, but um you know, an extreme example of that is busloads of Germans that head uh, right over the Austrian border to a town in northwestern Hungary that has 300 dental clinics. Um, uh, yeah, and they'll take. They actually have bus trips, and they load they load these patients on, and that's literally their dentist. And they 
they take in a, a, a an opera during opera season in Salzburg or, or Vienna, and then head over the border, get their work done, uh, and then come back home. Uh, and that's literally their dentist because the price of, 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 of dental care, just like in Norway, uh, you're on your own, um, uh, even for a, a health checkup, let alone an implant or a bridge or dentures or whatever. Um, uh, and so, yeah, the e- e- Expedia is offering some uh, uh, plans that are all inclusive. Uh, I see some of them pop up on Groupon every now and then. So it's beginning to happen, but I wouldn't recommend it for the more serious surgeries. I'd recommend it for health checkups, um, for light cosmetic surgery, a Botox treatment or a derma filler or, you know, um, a wellness strip of some kind. But um, mm, it's serious stuff, um, orthopedics, spinal work, uh, heart work. Uh, you, you want you want to vet that very closely, and I would say work directly with the hospital and not so much with the third party uh, facilitator. They all have some deal that they made with one hospital or another, and you want to make sure that you're really going to the right place and are one to one contact with the doctors and all the administrative staff. Are there any big questions that you haven't heard me ask today that I miss that we should be talking about before I let you go? No, I just would want to. I think you've done a really, really good job covering this. I wish more people were so, you know, so thorough and inquisitive. I just can't stress enough um, the need to do the homework, not price shop, make feel good about the clinic and a clinic that you're going to. Um, Take your time doing the screening because, you know, for example, we advise in the book. Uh, if you're not comfortable with the level of English, if you're not comfortable with the initial uh, contact, move on. There's another clinic or another uh, hospital down the road. And there are so many hospitals and clinics now that literally cater to the international English-speaking patient that there's a wide variety of choice, so you don't need to rush it. Um, make sure that you have all of your records with you and make sure that you uh, grant your uh, physician or specialist in your hometown, the courtesy of letting them know that you're going to be traveling for care so that when you come back, they're not surprised and uh, they'll be, they'll be more willing to, to help you uh, if there's any complications or any recovery or second consultations or second treatments needed. And when they have a roadmap and they understand that it's usually a financial decision, they're going to be okay with it and things are going to turn out okay. I appreciate all of that. And patientsbeyondborders.com is the website and, and the resource. And of course, you have the book, and we'll link to all the stuff we mentioned today in the show notes. Joe, it was such a pleasure getting to chat with you on this important topic. I just love I love that uh, people have options. That That's the word that keeps coming up. And just knowing that, hey, there are ways that you can still take care of yourself, that you're not going to lose everything or, or you know, there are ways that you can do it affordably and it's just about opening your mind up, I think to the world and what it has to offer. And like you said, maybe breaking down some of those, looking at some of those things that are maybe myths or misconceptions and understanding the real truths behind those. And hopefully we shed some light on that today. Thank you so much for your time, Joe. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor to, to, to be a part of your show and, um, um, good luck and let's stay in touch. <laughs> that sounds great. Appreciate your time and have a nice trip to India. 
<laughs> it's a quick one, but I, I, I hope to. I'm at least going to pick up some inexpensive pharmaceuticals there, but it's a hell of a long way to travel to get, some, get a few dollars worth of that. But I'll take it. There Good. you go. <laughs> take there care you of yourself. Go. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it, Joe. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise to the show and diving deep with me on this topic. I learned a ton. I hope you did as well. Again, why not have this information in the back of your mind just in case it's helpful and it's a strategy you might need one day. Hopefully, you don't need it now or nobody in your family needs help in this way. But if you do look into this. And I mentioned earlier on that I was going to share a resource that might blow your mind that if you're interested in this topic, you're going to want to follow. So over at Vox.com, there's a reporter named Sarah Cliff, K-L-I-F-F, who has been collecting bills, emergency room bills from different people all over America, and then writing articles and sharing these stories, and just really doing investigative work that needs to be done on this topic. I mean, some of the headlines here I'm looking at on Vox.com. He went to an in-network emergency room. He still ended up with a $7,924 bill. Here's another headline. Uh, A baby was treated with a nap and a bottle of formula. His parents received an $18,000 bill. (laughs) Um, She has a whole article that says, I read 1,182 emergency room bills this year. Here's what I learned. Um, Another one, a $20,243 bike crash. So, I mean, this stuff happens. And, you know, it's sad. I, I don't know if these are outlier cases, but it's good that there are reporters like Sarah out there that are bringing uh, this to the public's attention and, and making this more public and really just sharing through facts and real stories what is happening and that this needs to be fixed. Now, this isn't a political podcast or anything like that. I'm not going to go on a rant here, but clearly something needs to be done with the U.S. healthcare system. And, you know, wherever you're listening to this, if you're from another country, I'm sure everybody has their gripes with their own systems. But either way, it's good to know some of the other options out there. So there you go. That was the point of today's show. Got that one down. I'm excited that I was able to bring it to you. Thanks again for listening. I'm going to leave you with a quote here. Before I do, I want to thank Pimsler for supporting today's show. If you want to learn a language, now is the best time because if not now, then when? When are you going to start or when are you going to brush up on that language you want to learn or when are you going to start learning some words and phrases for that country that you're visiting soon so you can have a more authentic travel experience? Go to zerototravel.com slash easy. Check out the free seven-day trial with Pimsleur Language Learning Audio Courses, my favorite way to learn a language on the go. And if you love podcasts, you're going to love listening to the Pimsleur lessons, get you speaking right away. And I'm just a huge fan. And if you do go through that link, you'll also be supporting this show. So like Netflix, like Spotify, you pay one low monthly price, but then you get access to hundreds of dollars worth of lessons in whatever language you want to learn. It's awesome. ZeroToTravel.com slash easy. Check them out. Thank you to Pimsler for supporting this show. And if you go through that link and decide to go on with that offer, you'll also be supporting this show. And I thank you for that, my friend. This one from the Dalai Lama. Calm mind brings 
inner strength and self-confidence. So that's very important for good health. It's a quote from the Dalai Lama on health, of course. Hey, if you want to get in touch, jason at zero to travel.com is my email. Let me know what you thought of this show, any of the shows. Let me know what's going on in your life. Tell me about who you are. Just say hi. I love to hear from listeners and I'm sitting here talking to this microphone and this is a two-way conversation I want to hear back because this is a community-powered show. This is your show, my friend. So I want to leave you with that call to action. Get in touch and just say hi. If you got some time, I read all the emails that come in. I want to thank everybody who's taking the time to write or leave a review. I love those reviews. They're always nice to read too. They make my day. So if you haven't gotten in touch yet, one way or the other, just say hello. Thank you, my friends. Until next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.